Well, it's an unexpected privilege that I have this morning to come and to share the Word of God with you, but I think that it actually has some value sometimes to have these unexpected opportunities in which maybe uh, you weren't prepared to hear me, and I certainly wasn't prepared to share with you the Word of God, because, and this is the reason why it's so valuable, because we have this, this kind of distorted view in at least the American church that what we do when we go to church is we go to hear someone preach. Now, don't get me wrong, we in one sense do go to hear someone preach, but what we are really doing is going to hear what God has to say. And so um, this morning, what we are here to do is really not just to hear the thoughts that I have um, quickly prepared since about six something this morning, uh, when Pastor Kyle uh, uh, turned out he was just too sick to come. But we're here to hear what does God want us to hear this morning. And I think if we ask and answer that question, quite honestly, we're going to be way better than if you just came to hear a preacher preach. You're here to hear what God says. In fact, I have a, a pastor friend over on the peninsula in Port Angeles who often begins, and I've taken up the the mantle from him, he often begins his scripture reading with these words, this is the word of God to you. And that's what I'd like to say to you this morning as we do our scripture reading as a part of what we're going to be sharing together in this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 17 and read through verse 33. This is probably just about the most familiar communion passage that we could possibly pick. There are, uh, we could certainly go back to the Gospels and hear what the Lord Jesus said as he administered that very first Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples. But this morning we're going to Paul's words as he looks back at that experience and helps us to understand what it is that we do as we share together in these very common, very basic elements as we, in a very real sense, demonstrate something about the nature and the character of our God. So, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, I'd ask you to stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, through the end of the chapter. And these are, in fact, the very words of God to you. But in following the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse, Paul writes, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Our Father, as we examine this passage in preparation for sharing together in this meal that you instituted so long ago, we ask that you would open our minds and hearts to hear the very Word of God, that the Spirit of God minister the Word of God to the people of God, and so bring out of this gathering this morning a resonance to the glory of God. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated and as you're seated, if you'd keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'd like for you to um, also turn with me to James chapter 2. And I want to give you, in a sense, four windows or maybe four tastes from this, the supper of God. So we gather in a few moments around this table to share together in, in a meal that has been celebrated for over 2,000 years, and I want to give you four tastes or four perspectives on what it is that we are doing. There's a beauty in doing something again and again, and that beauty we'll be talking about in a moment, but there's also a danger because many times when we do something over and over and over, well, we forget why we're doing it. We forget what it really means. And so this morning, I hope that as we share in these few words before we come to that time, that I can be of use in bringing you back to the Word of God to remind you of why it is that we do these things that we now share together in the Lord's Supper. And in James chapter 2, verse 19, we read some very interesting, actually beginning in verse 18, we read some interesting and stirring words that will help us to get there as we think about what it is that we share together in This is what it says in verse 18 of uh, the book of James. In verse, again, 18, chapter 2, it says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And now verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. And now the indictment, Even the demons believe and shudder. Now we know that believing what God says is essential to the very foundation of the Christian walk. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we know that there's really only one way to please God, right? You remember what it says? That the only way to please God is to come to him by faith. That's what God is pleased with. So it's interesting that James here is saying that when we come to God, our belief, 
Well, what is he saying? He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says, listen, guys, even, even the demons believe and tremble. I think that sometimes I get into the idea that believing in my mind is enough all on its own. But James is making a very important and clear statement here saying that belief, real belief, in fact, the primary evidence of belief is action. That believing real faith is going to do something about it. Now, what James is not doing here is undermining the essential nature of faith or of belief. That's not what he's saying. But he is giving us a litmus test to know whether or not our faith, our belief is real. And he's saying, if you want to tell me that you have faith, then show me the money. That's what he's saying. He's saying, give me evidence of the fact that your faith is real. Because if, in fact, it is real, it will be demonstrated. So I've had to ask myself over the past number of months, maybe almost a year now, so what does it look like to actually believe? Because believing is something that we do between us and God, that I believe that he is who he says he is and that, he, that I am in God's sight who he says that I am. What then is it going to look like in my everyday normal life to believe God? I, I mean, we know that it's essential. It's the fundamental. It's the only way that we're going to actually please God is to believe him, to have faith in him. But James says, show me the money. So how am I, how am I doing that? What is faith looking like as it is worked out in my life and experience? And this morning, there are more than four ways uh, that I would like to share with you, but we'll start with this morning four ways, and we're going to be looking at that as it relates to the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Four ways that we show that what, show what we really believe, that we, in a sense, evidence our believing life. And the first word that I want to help you think about as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we don't want, by the way, to be like the demons who just believe and shudder, right? By the way, did, the, did James makes a clear statement that demons actually do believe. They actually do believe. In fact, the demons know many, uh, much more in many ways than certain of us. They know how holy, how true, how, how righteous, how just God is. They know, and their knowing stops there. All they do is tremble for the judgment yet to come. They do nothing to act upon that belief to change. That, that's the difference. And so we have the beautiful privilege of actually knowing and letting that knowledge inform the way that we act, that belief inform the way that we live the first way that we can do that this morning that we'd like to look at here as we consider 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is by considering our redemption. Considering our redemption. And when we do that, we can look here at this passage and we can say, what a cost. What a cost there is in my redemption. You look at this and you see the elements. I want you to remember that as Jesus first instituted the supper... It was with elements very much like these, but he made it a very, very strong illustration of what he was actually saying. He's not just talking about having a piece of bread and a small cup of juice. He's talking 
Well, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about his body and his blood. And that's the picture. So my redemption, when we look at this, is, is bought at such a cost. We consider the cost, but then we also consider, as we think about redemption, the grace, what my redemption means for now and forever. Because this grace which is ministered to me through the body and through the blood of the Lord Jesus ushers me into an entirely new way of living. In fact, we could really say that it ushers me into life. Before, what were we, according to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6, Paul asserts that before Jesus, we were dead. Dead, yes, dead. He doesn't say, by the way, that we were asleep. That is a theological heresy. We were not just sleeping. There was not some element of a divine spark somewhere within us, and we were just needed to be awakened from our spiritual dormancy. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We, had, we were dead to all the things that had anything to do with pleasing God. But through Jesus, through his redemption, through his body, and through his blood, we have been ushered for the very first time into life. But here's the interesting thing. We often stop right there. We say, okay, that's wonderful. I look back at my redemption in the past and I give God thanks for it. We'll take these elements here in a few moments. And that's a good thing to do. That we would sit back and say, I remember when God brought me into his family. That's a good thing. But I'd like to ask you, if in fact you are alive, how are you showing it? You know, I've watched the births of six children, and um, it has been an amazing miracle every single time. And this little tiny person that we'd never met before is first introduced to us in all of their newborn glory, and uh, well, maybe glory is a little too strong for how you first see a newborn, but, but uh, to me it's glorious. And uh, as you meet that little person, I wonder what you'd think if that little person just stopped right there. We, we got to meet this glorious new little being. We heard the first cry, and everything ended. Well, that would be a stillborn baby, really, almost, at birth that was followed by death. So it's only appropriate that those who have truly been born into the kingdom not only remember the fact that they were born, but that God is continuing to be at work to grow them in life. I'm happy to say that I have six children who didn't just stop as babies, that they kept growing up in the faith and evidencing the fact that they are alive. If we are not growing, quite honestly, we can't testify very well to the fact that we are alive. So our redemption, when we consider it, is not just a memory of something that once upon a time happened long ago. It is an evidence of what is continuing to happen right now. In other words, as I think about the impact of the gospel in my life, it's not just a stop at a point in time. It's an experience that I can presently know. It's an experience you can presently know. You can know the redemptive power of Jesus presently as you look at what he has done for you in the past. So the question that we're needing to address is, 
what is the impact? What is the impact of really considering my redemption that happened at a point in time but has ongoing effects in my experience right now? What do I consider as I take these elements as we share together in them in a few moments? I would recommend that you celebrate what happened long ago and that you ask God what he wants to do by his power right now. Our redemption is one of those things that drives us back to consider how is it that God is actually acting. And, and, and I want you to know that not only are we seeing redemption at play as what it does for us, but how it can be misunderstood. Uh, in fact, it's a pretty significant warning in this passage. In verse 27, we read, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So we are to eat worthily. And what would it be like to eat worthily? Well, we have specifics here in what was taking place in the Corinthian church as they esteemed themselves of greater importance than the others. Exactly contrary to what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, where we're to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Here they're esteeming themselves as more important than others. In other words, what we're doing is living like, get this, living like Jesus never died. That's the, that's the contrary point to redemption. We, we look back and thank God for our redemption, but we live like he never died like he never rose again, like the gospel never makes a difference to me. So the Corinthian believers, some of them, were gathering, living like it was just about them. Oh, they took the same elements. They enjoyed sharing together in the meal. Uh, maybe they enjoyed it a little too much. They were getting drunk and eating to gluttony. And others were having none here in the Corinthian church, they were living like the gospel had no effect upon them. Oh, I, I think that if you interviewed them, if we could go back to that first century church and we talked to the Corinthian believers, they would do what we often do and say, oh no, I remember the day that I was brought into the family of God and redeemed. But they were not living like it. And so as a result, Paul says, you are actually in participating together in the in this communion, in this Lord's Supper, you are actually eating and drinking damnation, he says, to yourself. You're profaning the very body and blood of the Lord. So what happened in the past when we believed Jesus was that we changed masters. But that doesn't mean that we no longer have a battle with sin. We, like the Corinthians, still battle with our own internal lust, our selfish desire to do what we want to do. The flesh still longs to exert its influence. So the question for us is, how is my daily redemption being worked out? How is it that my belief is different from that of the demons who believe and tremble? Tim Chester, a pastor in Great Britain, writes uh, to describe what we do when we consider our redemption an ordinary, a regular, a daily thing, not just a thing in the past. He says it's, it's recognizing, hear these words, they've been very meaningful to me, hearing, re recognizing that God is bigger and 
better than our sinful desires. That God is bigger and better than our sinful desires. We come to this table this morning to celebrate the fact that Jesus has died for our sins. And that in dying for our sins, taking our sins upon himself, we no longer bear the penalty of God's divine wrath. But Paul would argue in the book of Romans, that doesn't mean go and sin some more. That doesn't mean that just because grace is greater, that we should do whatever we please. And so that means that we have to stop and say, when we really think about our redemption How is it that God is bigger and better than our sinful desires? And I want to ask you, is he bigger and better than your sinful desires? You know, in the moment when I am really put to the test by temptation, the thing that is biggest and best in my experience at that moment is often my sinful desires. So... Someone crosses me, and I become, uh, and I want to get angry. And I would like to tell you that this has never happened, but I can speak from personal experience. Someone crosses me in some way, whether willingly or unwillingly, whether knowingly or not knowingly, and I want to be angry. And at that moment, I have a decision to make that reflects whether or not I'm actually believing my redemption is real. And so I have sometimes come to that point, and this is just sin, and I have thought, yes, I know, but I am wanting to be mad anyway. And so I've gotten mad and done it anyway. You know what I just said in doing that? I don't really believe that God is bigger and better than this sinful desire to be angry right now. You might have it in the way of forgiveness. I, I, I know I should forgive this person, but right now I would like to wring from them the last morsel of human justice. <laughs> Some of you know what that's like, and I know what that's like for sure. And in that moment, you have a decision. You have a decision of whether or not you actually believe that in that moment, God is bigger and better than your sinful desire to wring from that person what you believe justice really is. I mean, it can happen with pornography, guys. In that moment when your flesh is raging and your eyes are longing and everything in you says, just one look will be okay, surely, you have a decision to make. It's a very simple decision with enormous consequences. Do you believe that God is bigger and better than all your drives and passions? That's redemption played out on a a normal, ordinary basis. So we think of redemption as just the thing that happened to us once upon a time in the past that I repeat when I give my testimony. It is, but it's not all. That's the beginning point. That was the birth into which now you enter a whole life of growth by the grace of God, to grow in the nature and character of God so that you demonstrate every day that you are redeemed. When we come to this table, that's what we're testifying to. We are testifying to the fact that we have been bought with a price. We are not, get this, we are not 
our own. Therefore, we glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are his. We're testifying to the fact we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We're testifying to the fact that we're glad about it. Because God actually is bigger and better than all our sinful desires. Redemptive belief, in one sense, leans into God's goodness like our life depends on it, because it does. So the very first thing we think about as we look this morning through one particular window, or as we take one particular taste of this great supper of the Lord, is that it reminds us of our redemption, our redemption which occurred in the past with ongoing results, which causes us to ask this very important question, how is it that today I will demonstrate that my God, my God, who gave his body and blood for me, is in fact bigger and better than that thing that I want to do, which would otherwise displease him. But there's another window, and that is the window of repentance, the window of repentance through which we see these words this morning. You know, it's interesting that the uh, answer to the problems in the Corinthian church was not, don't ever take communion again. D did you notice that? Hey, guys, stop it. You just can't do it anymore. Stop. Don't do, don't do this anymore. Oh, it was stop it, but not stop the remembrance, not stop the actual supper. It was stop doing what was wrong. It was turn around and go in the opposite direction, celebrate this supper of the Lord in the way that honors the Lord of the supper, in the way that recognizes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus as having an impact in your life, and that impact is to turn you around. So the goal Paul has in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not to bring cessation to the supper of the Lord, but to turn people around so that they can celebrate the supper of the Lord in a, well, you catch it here, in a worthy manner. That's the goal. That's the idea. So the natural right response of coming into contact with God through these elements even is always to repent. It was Martin Luther who actually said as the very number one of his 95 theses that he pasted to the door of the Wittenberg church over 500 years ago that he said that the sum of the Christian life is repentance. So I wonder why that would be. Why is it that the, that the sum total, that the, that the great big idea, the core that runs all the way through our experience should be repentance? But I know the answer. And if you stop, you do too. It's because we continue to struggle with sin. And so because we are not our own, because we have been bought with a price, because we have experienced the blessing of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, every time we come in contact with him, it gives us a chance to go back and re-examine where it is that we have fallen short of the glory of God, where it is that we have not actually done what was pleasing to him. And in those places to turn and to repent. In fact, repentance is so significant to this whole idea of the New Testament. Uh, Paul summarizes his ministry that way in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. He summarizes his whole ministry with these words. He says, I am testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, 
I believe that my sin, my sin offends God and at the same moment, I believe that my sin offends God and at the same moment, I believe that Jesus paid for my sin. That's what we're experiencing as we walk together into this Lord's Supper this morning. I believe that my sin offends God, but I believe simultaneously that Jesus paid for my sin. So how do we put that together? How do we actually experience what Luther was describing as an ongoing process of repentance at the very core of our experience every day? And I've been blessed to think about these words, again by this pastor in the UK, Tim Chester, who says and describes repentance in a way that's been very helpful to me. I hope it'll be helpful to you. This is what he writes. He says, in the past, I've sometimes suspected that repentance was an add-on work, that we're not really saved by faith alone, it turns out, but by faith plus repentance. But this, he writes, is not true. Turning to God in faith and turning from sin in repentance are the same movement. Try it now, he says. Stand facing the window. So we can think of these windows over here. Stand facing the window. Then turn to face the opposite wall. The act of turning from the window to the wall is one movement. You can't turn toward the wall without turning away from the window. And you can't turn to God in faith without turning away from sin and repentance. Repentance, he says, get this, in itself is an act of faith. Repentance itself is an act of faith. We say, well, how can I, how can I demonstrate a faith that truly pleases God, a faith which exceeds that faith of the demons who believe and tremble, who shudder at the very realization of coming judgment, but do nothing about it. And here's one way. And as we see the Lord's Supper, we see exactly what these Corinthian believers were to do. They were to repent. They weren't to stop doing the Lord's Supper like the supper itself was no longer valuable. They were to do what was necessary for the supper to be valuable to them, to experience the blessing of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. They were to repent of their sins. Paul says in verse 29 of chapter 11, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Many are sick, many have died. But he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. So I ask you as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, in what way should you follow Paul's words in verse 31 and judge yourself? That you should come in the words of David in Psalm 139 and verse 24 and say, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. And the implication of that is, and he goes on to say, and lead me in the way everlasting. So what, what you hear is repentance, right? See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do you feel it? We've often said those verses. And yet here we actually experience what it is to come into contact with God, to demonstrate belief by repenting when we come into connection or awareness of our sinful behaviors. So the very first thing we do is we believe that God truly is bigger and better than our sinful desires. That we manifest in a very real way that God really is God, that redemption is real, not just a fiction or a story that happened once upon a time. And then we believe, 
And then we believe that when I come into contact with my ongoing problem with sin, there's hope. Because by the grace of God, and in an act of faith, I repent of my sin. The table is a place for repentance, as well as a place for remembering our redemption. It's also a place for reckoning. Reckoning is a funny old word, it's an accounting term. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 6, and he talks about reckoning himself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? In verse 11, chapter 6, the book of Romans, I reckon myself, I consider myself, I account myself to be dead. Now, the problem is, the problem that we experience is that we feel very much alive. I I mean, it really is the trouble that I'm saying, but no, I mean, that's kind of make-believe, Paul. Because what we're really talking about is a person who's very much alive, who's very much feeling the pull of the flesh and of sin and of the world around me. Are we just talking about pretending? And the answer is no. Pretending gets you nowhere but into bondage. And the reason for that, by the way, is that truth always leads to freedom. But deceit, even self-deceit, maybe even especially self-deceit, leads to bondage every time. It doesn't matter if you're doing it for what you believe is a good reason. Every time you enter into a deceit, you walk into a form of bondage. But when we reckon the truth to be true, no matter what we feel, we are practicing a freedom that cannot be overthrown. It really, in a sense, reckoning is believing that this work of God, this body, this blood, this covenant, this remembrance is for me. That it's not just a great theory or a story about a man who once lived and did something very noble. This is for me. When I was a, a little boy, I was slow to lose my teeth, and I really, really wanted to lose teeth. And so uh, that was, you know, the tooth fairy would come, and I would make some money, and I was looking forward to that. And um, so I, I remember thinking about that and fixing it. In fact, I, I used to tie strings to my teeth and try and pull them out, but I was way too big a wimp to actually do it, and so I'd put it on the door handle and try and swing the door shut, and then I'd race after the door, you know? So I, I wanted to, I couldn't bring myself to actually do the job, but I really wanted to lose teeth. But I could know a couple of things. I could reckon. I could know that I was, from all I knew, a normal boy, and that normal boys lose teeth. And so on the basis of that, I could say, you know, if I'm truly a normal boy, and if normal boys truly lose teeth, then one of these days, somewhere, somehow, these little baby teeth are going to come out of my mouth. It doesn't matter what I feel or how many of my classmates have already experienced the loss of their teeth. I will someday lose my teeth, because that's just the way that it works. Only we have something much more solid and stable than losing teeth. By the way, I've lost all those teeth. Isn't that amazing? And, and for all of you who are older, you have too, and now you're losing them. No, don't lose them again. 
It's a pretty sure process, right? We can be pretty well guaranteed that it's going to happen, but we have something more certain than that when we reckon that the truth of God is true. And the way that we reckon that the truth of God is true is by holding onto it when nothing about it makes human sense. Holding on to it when nothing about it seems to make human sense. When I cannot add it up in my mind and come up to what I believe is actually right. When it doesn't make sense to me and I hold on to it anyway, that is a part of reckoning. It's just saying this thing is true and I will hold myself to it. There's a pastor in New York who was diagnosed sometime back with pancreatic cancer. Um, and he wrote an article... He'd written, in fact, a small book called On Death prior to his diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. And um, he ended up writing an article after this uh, in which he said, after my diagnosis, I was afraid to pick up my own book and read what I had written because he was having to reckon the truth to be true. It didn't make what he had written in the past less true. It was that he had to experience that truth for himself, because now he was looking death in the face. How would he actually face his own death? He says, I sat by the bedsides of countless people as they died, but now I had to face death for myself. And he writes these words. He said, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart as the reality of death, or I would not be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths, or he says, be discarded as useless. Are, are you with me? Do you hear what he's saying? He's, he's spent his whole life propounding the truths of the resurrection of Jesus and that there is hope beyond the grave. But now as he stands, in a sense, at the brink of his own grave, he says, I've either got to really believe it or just call the whole thing a sham. That's what reckoning does for us. When we stand at the grave of our own desires or unfulfilled dreams or even at the grave of our own physical demise coming soon, we get the chance to say, do we really believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Do we really believe that he rose from the dead, and that his resurrection promises mine? Do we really believe that he gave his body, his blood for me, and thus my eternity is assured? There's much more we could say about reckoning, but reckoning really, get this tying it all the way back, reckoning banks everything on the truth of redemption. It measures everything we see and everything we experience by what God says. So our number one evidence for how life is going is not about my circumstances. The number one evidence for how life is going is what God says. That's reckoning. So I'm not looking just to have someone else tell me, I think you look, you, your life looks like it's being very blessed by God. Well, what does God say? Or, or your... Um, your family sure is a great family. What does God say? Or boy, I sure hope that uh, you can... What, what does God say? If God says it, I'm banking my whole life on what he says. That's what we testify to as we come to this table. There's one final thing. 
that I think is useful for us to consider, and that is rehearsal. This is one last taste of the Lord's Supper for this morning before we actually taste it together. In this passage, we read the words in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sinclair Ferguson, a modern-day theologian, uh, says, I've been asked by people, uh, how often is often? You hear this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. And the question, of course, is, well, should we do that weekly, or should we do that monthly, or should we do that, I mean, you know, what, what's really the best, Ferguson, what's the best pattern for doing this? And he says, I know the answer. It's often. And the reason it's often is because whatever that is, whether it's weekly or monthly or some other, if it's bi-weekly, the real answer is that we need to constantly rehearse the work of God on our behalf. We need the constant rehearsal of what it is that God has done for us. We need to be reminded again of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus so that we would come back into connection with him through this amazing meal which reminds us of our redemption and of the need for repentance and the opportunity in a daily way to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin because Jesus is bigger and better than all my sinful desires. We need to rehearse that over and over again. When I was in school days, I somehow became, I've been captivated with words and letters for a long time and I happened to find an interesting source of a really cool word, and that is on the back of a shampoo bottle. There is, on the back of many shampoo bottles, you will find, even today I think, a 27-letter word. And I was so captivated that, by that because of the grandeur of the word itself, the size is so impressive, that I began repeating it every time I'd suds up. I would sound it out to myself, and here it is. You ready for this? Methylchlorosothiazolinone. And I worked on that word until I could say it like my best friend's name. Methylchlorosothiazolinone. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I don't know if there are any chemists here. And I don't know if you put it in your hair, if it wipes it out or if it cleans it up or if it, you know, is giving you cancer. I don't know what it does. But I can tell you that that is a pretty grand word because it's 27 letters long. You know how I learned that word? By saying it over and over and over. By sounding it out one syllable at a time. And then by doing it again. And then the next time I took a shower, doing it again. And that's the idea of the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing. As we come again, and it's like, boy, what are we doing this again for? Can I tell you that we need to rehearse something much more complex than a 27-letter word? We need to rehearse something so beautiful that all of the ages center on this point. That Jesus died and that his body was broken and that his blood was shed in anticipation of the fact that he is coming again.